0: All right. We are in a series on worldview and um, uh, mindset. And um, though we have a number of visitors here, I'm not going to try to recap the entire series. Uh, if uh, it sparks some interest, you can get it on iTunes, right? Uh, but I, I do want to uh, briefly give you a little information on it as we get to where we are today, which is the movement from modernity to postmodernity. modernity uh, That period, uh, that really took place uh, in the 1960s. Uh, it's good today we have several people uh, among us uh, who lived through what I'm going to talk about, and so I won't be the lonely voice of this. Uh, and... Um, uh, it will, it will be clearer when I explain it now than it was when we lived through it. Believe me, uh, <laughs> that was an odd time. Uh, in ancient times, the Greco-Roman culture and worldview and the Judeo-Christian worldview were distinct. They were very different cultures. Uh, this was particularly true with regard to how you address God. In the Greco-Roman world, you looked at circumstances and if the circumstances were going your way, the gods were favoring you and the circumstances were going against you, then something was wrong. And you had to try to figure out how to appease the gods so that things would go good for you. And so you looked at circumstances and said, what is God trying to say to me? That is not a Judeo-Christian statement, that's a Greco-Roman statement. The Judeo-Christian statement was, we have the word of God, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. So we will look at those circumstances through the light of God and know how to navigate through them. But God's not teaching us anything through the circumstances. We are are learning from the word of God itself. Those were separate ideas. And when the Greco-Roman world and the Judeo-Christian religions came together uh, in the uh, first uh, few centuries of the common era, There was a merging of those two ideas. Uh, This was done by Augustine and by the church fathers. There would be another mixing of the Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman world at the time of Thomas Aquinas and then the Renaissance when art and literature revived and those two worlds were remixed again as if they had kind of settled down. They They were fluffed up, if you will, like a pillow. The pre-modern worldview then that was a mixture of those two uh, began a degeneration around the the 500s uh, up until the time of what we call the Reformation. There was a centralization, a corruption, uh, illiteracy took place. uh, There was a a loss of the Hebrew language. uh, There was a rise in anti-Semitism, particularly in the church, and replacement theology. All of those things... Uh, brought about a very difficult time that we often call the Dark Ages. Between the 1300s and the 1700s, the Black Death, uh, world exploration, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment brought about a period that we call modernity. And that period... uh, Came to its apex in the 1800s and went through the 1900s, and towards the end of the 1900s, began to give way to what we call the postmodern period. Now, the m- modern period brought a new secular and humanistic worldview that challenged the church's pre modern one, and the church ultimately split into two worlds and two worldviews one that was a liberal theology. And one that was a conservative theology. And it was primarily based on what do we do with science. So the secular world, modern worldview said we don't need religion. The liberal religious modern worldview said we'll take science and we'll keep as much of the Bible as we can. And the conservative one said we'll keep the Bible and we'll take as much of science as we can. And that's kind of where we ended uh, last week. So the modern secular worldview, there are three worldviews of people who grew up in the 1900s. You were either a secular person. If you were that, you were atheistic or agnostic. You saw science as the basis of truth. You saw the Bible generally as literature. And you believed that the government could bring about a better world. If you were a liberal uh, believer, you might be agnostic. Or you might be theistic. You believed that the Bible and science both had truth. All truth is God's truth. You believed that the Bible was unique among literature. And you believed that the government and the church working appropriately could bring about a better world. If you were a conservative person, you were theistic. You believed that the scriptures were truth. And science could give us knowledge. Sometimes it was big T truth and little t truth. You believed that the scripture was a revelation from God. But you believed that family and congregation were the primary institutions, not the government. And those three worldviews competed for my generation, my parents' generation, and for uh, the beginning of the generation of my children. Uh, so what did they look like? How how did they see the world? I mentioned this last week. I'll just read it again and then we'll be caught up and I can talk about this week's uh, message. First, the secular worldview, what's sometimes called secular humanism, believes that science is our primary source of knowledge. The natural and social sciences can give us the best understanding of reality and human nature when combined with Clear, rational thought and reason. As we get better knowledge through research and experimentation, we can make a better and more perfect world. That world will not have war, will not have crime, will not have poverty, will not have sickness, and perhaps will not have death. Man is basically good and when man acts evil, it's circumstantial and we have to work on the circumstances. That is the progressive world of secularism today. The liberal religious view is that science is our primary source of knowledge. Natural and social science can give the best understanding of reality and human nature when combined with rational thought and reason. The Bible and religion can enrich our lives when kept subject to science and reason. It can provide a moral perspective and a hope beyond death. But man can, through science and reason, make a better and more perfect world without war, crime, poverty, sickness, and perhaps death. Man is basically good and circumstances create evil. Now if that sounds very similar, it is. The secular world and the liberal religious world agree on everything except the idea that there might be a God, there might be a a world after this one. And uh, but they believe that generally the, the way to a better future of humanity is through science and reason. The conservative religious one says the Bible interpreted correctly using reason and critical thinking is the primary source of truth and knowledge. It gives us information regarding God's intent in creation and the nature of man. Man is not capable of good without God and salvation. Science and reason may be helpful if kept subject to biblical truth. Man cannot make ultimately a better world. The Messiah will bring a better world and the next creation will eliminate war, crime, poverty, sickness, and death. That's a very different worldview. Now, that's not the biblical worldview. I always let that sink in. I haven't got to the biblical worldview. But there are components in there that are biblical. But it's not the biblical worldview that was lost that we need to regain. It is a conservative, theologically, that has now become a conservative political worldview. And those are not the same. I'll talk a little bit about that today. But that gets us through uh, the, the notes that you have if you pick those up this morning. Now we're in new territory So if you want to remember this, you either got to get the tape or you got to write it down, right? There's a blank on the back side of there or you can use the bulletin between the Sabbaths, right? Three worldviews then uh, became the modern worldview. And if you are my generation and several of you in this room are, uh, we were uh, born into the modern world. And we were told that medical science was going to prolong life, and remove disease. We were told that the war on poverty would eliminate poverty in our time. We were going to eliminate war in our time through peace negotiations and that the world would come to be what we all saw in Star Trek where the races all got along, the people all had no needs and we could just explore and go where no man has gone before. Uh, and, uh, no, it was before no one were getting there. That's postmodern. modern still believed that there were men and women. Okay? And that that was different. Uh, so, uh, in, the, in the 1960s, a shift took place. Now, it didn't start... <laughs> Excuse me. I haven't done that in a while. It didn't start in the 1960s. There was a push that came out of the modernism, there was a push on the secular humanistic side that pushed in the late 1800s, that pushed again in the 1920s, and then really came to bloom in the 1960s. And that's when there was a breakthrough into what's called the postmodern, post-Christian world. So... I'm going to talk this morning about some movements in the culture and in the church. Then we'll look at a a passage of scripture uh, that took place during this time uh, that I had a front row seat in and many of you had a front row seat in. Uh, I am going to oversimplify it and I'm going to leave some of this stuff out because I can't talk about everything. These were not causes. They were catalysts, influences for the move from what is called the modern world to the postmodern world if you grew up in the late 1900s like 1980s 1990s or in the millennium you you were more influenced by the postmodern world which our generation created and if you are, are raising children now they will certainly grow up in a postmodern post-christian world and you need to parent accordingly so, what took place in American culture that brought us into a postmodern world? Well, the first one uh, is the civil rights movements. The civil rights movements uh, began in the 1940s, coming out of the union movements. The union movements were a, a, an attempt to use collective bargaining. To raise the standard of living in a somewhat Marxist uh, ideal, not a communist ideal, a more Marxist idea that had come out of the uh, the struggles of um, uh, World War One, uh, and and ideas that would come to fruition later. They pushed uh, these unions. One of the unions was the Porter. Uh, union of the uh, Pullman uh, trains and this had a number of African-Americans who did that job and when they did collective bargaining that set in stage what would explode in the 1950s as the civil rights movement. So the civil rights movement was a push towards uh, American equality and you have two basic approaches to the civil rights movement. Um, and they are identified in each of the ethnic groups. But since in the, in the 60s, I was uh, uh, incorporated into an African-American family, I know the black struggle better than I know the other groups, but there were leaders in all of these. So I want to talk about two people. The first one is a person that you know probably pretty well. His name was Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, in my opinion, was not a great African-American leader. And when I say that, people are aghast. The reason I say that is Martin Luther King was a great American leader because Martin Luther King was arguing for the historic melting pot ideal of Americans. He believed that individual Americans should be given equal opportunity in a nonviolent way so that each person was... Uh, endowed with the the rights that the founding fathers recognized, and that it would not be a judgment based on your race, but on the content of your character. And if you've read his letter from a Birmingham jail, he he winds Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman sources using the the modern worldview and the Judeo-Christian value system to make an argument for. Uh, The people he called at that time Negroes that were his people to be allowed an equal opportunity and chance in America. There was another man whose name uh, ultimately became Malcolm X. Malcolm X was not a great American leader. He was a great African American leader. In other words, he was more for an African-American identity, whereas uh, Martin Luther King was for an American individual identity. He said, we need our own God, we need our own people, we need our own institutions, we need our own education, we need our own structure, because we're never going to be allowed as individuals into mainstream America because they can spot us. And the battle between the ideology of Martin Luther King and the battle of the ideology of Malcolm X was found in the Hispanic community, the Asian community, Native American community, and all the civil rights things had those two polemic things. Now, what happened, briefly, is Martin Luther King got a holiday and America went the direction of Malcolm X. We went from melting pot to pluralism. We went from where will try to make your race and ethnicity and religion not matter to now you will be uh, grouped by your race, gender, identity group. And pluralism exploded into the 1960s and is is the the current mindset of people. Um, Now another thing happened at this time that really influenced America. In 1955, a former Methodist by the name of Hugh Hefner started a magazine. The magazine was called Playboy. And the magazine had uh, a number of uh, characteristics to it. One of those being the famous centerfold. And Marilyn Monroe was the first centerfold. And little boys of my generation, when we got our haircuts were introduced to Playboys stuffed inside other magazines. And so we would be reading uh, Boy's Life this way uh, because of those pictures. Now, the Playboy philosophy that Hugh Hefner um, suggested, and it was more than a magazine. It was uh, 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 clubs, It was books. It was jazz festivals. It was an entire philosophy of life. And the advertising of the early Playboy magazines always had a a page, two or three pages. And it said at the top, what sort of man reads Playboy? And that was their advertisement system. The man who read Playboy was a sophisticated person. He liked jazz he liked stereos he liked gadgets he liked fine clothes he was a sophisticated cosmopolitan man of the world and he also enjoyed sexuality but the but it was an entire package many of the early james bond novels started out as serializations in playboy And, of course, the big joke was I only read the magazine for the articles. And the idea was to come up with this sophisticated thing. Hugh Hefner said the reason that there are sexual problems is that we have religious hang-ups about sexuality. The Playboy philosophy attacked marriage. It attacked human sexuality as holy and made human sexuality individual and it made it recreational. And the idea of casual sex came out of the Playboy um, philosophy that took place. Um, And so it's very important to understand some of these influences that were happening. Following that came the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution was the idea that we needed to throw off our religious hang-ups about sexuality, explore our sexuality. That included um, uh, an experimentation with other forms of sexuality. That was problematic up until that time. But in 1960, the birth control pill was released and now allowed women to forego... Children and sexual activity. Children now became an option rather than a necessity of sexual activity. And marriage began to be unhinged from sexuality. And parenting began to be unhinged from sexuality. And it began moving in that kind of a direction. To help with that came my field, anthropology. And a particular person by the name of Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead uh, had written a dissertation back in the 1920s uh, on the Samoans. Margaret Mead uh, went to Samoa. She spent nine months there. She came back and wrote a book, Coming of Age in Samoa. Now, the reason she did this is in America in the 1920s and the Roaring Twenties was a wild time. There was sex, drugs, and jazz. (laughs) Everything that you have heard of in the 60s comes from the 20s. The miniskirt was invented in the 20s, not the 60s. The flappers had them. All of that happened, but the 20s crashed in 29 when the stock market crashed. And then World War II hit. And so all of that stuff that would have happened stopped cold. Margaret Mead wrote a book about this Polynesian island that was beautiful. Everything was great and the teenagers in America were, were, were in trouble. They were, they were using drugs. They were committing suicide. They were committing crimes. They were having all kinds of problems. When she went to Samoa, the teenagers never rebelled. They, uh, they didn't do any crimes. There was no suicide. They didn't talk back to anybody. They lived happily Uh, They were free about sex, they were free about death, they were free and open about everything. And so Margaret Mead said, if America will open up its mind about sexuality, open up its mind about death, open up its mind, be more open about these things, uh, it will bring about a miracle. One of the miracles that she promised was when she asked the Samoan women about menstrual cramps, they didn't know what she was talking about. Because none of them had menstrual cramps, all the women were orgasmic, every, it was perfect. Everybody thought that those things were biological. And Margaret Mead proved they weren't biological, they were culturally determined. And what this field brought, and that her book became a bestseller in the 50s and 60s, it brought about this idea that these things, particularly male-female roles, are culturally determined, not biologically determined. Men and women are exactly the same except for the plumbing. Women's sexuality is just the same as male sexuality. Everything is the same and, and this notion of it being science and biological is nonsense because the social sciences have now proven that it is, um, is culturally determined. At the same time, Watergate struck and the Vietnam War and we were told by experience that we could not trust our government. And the patriotism of America began to ebb really quickly in the coming generation. In 1955, the same year that the Playboy magazine started, there was a a young, white, southern musician named Elvis Presley who hit this culture like a rocket and Elvis the pelvis started using what was considered black music. Now black music was allowed in society because black music influenced jazz and was part of the 20s. Now black music, particularly black church music, was going to bring their rhythms and all of that stuff into the pop music in what we call rock and roll. So from the 20s, sex, drugs, and jazz, we got a new idea, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And that rock and roll would bring about a generation that had its own music. Now that happened in World War II with the big bands. And 33 RPMs. Any of you know 33 RPMs? I have a whole collection of them. Big band stuff. I was raised on that. But then this new stuff came around. And they put them on these things called 45s. And you could hear them in the jukeboxes. And you could do all of this stuff. And that generation got its own soundtrack. And that soundtrack was a young soundtrack. That was a little bit country and a little bit wild. And that wild turned into rock and roll. As that rock and roll continued, some globally known bands began to influence a whole generation. And when the Beatles began to experiment with Eastern philosophy and Eastern religions, an entire mindset of Eastern thinking invaded the Western world. And that affected us as well. Now, when I was growing up, very few people had TVs. What people had was a radio about the size of this pulpit. And they would listen to a few things, but all of a sudden, they came out with these transistor radios. And I could have a radio about the size of your cell phone with an earphone in my ear, and I could listen to our music. Okay, And my generation could listen to our music 24-7 with radio stations like KRLA that played that stuff. And my parents didn't have to hear it. They could listen to Eddie Arnold all they wanted. But I could listen to uh, different people. Peter and Gordon. The Rolling Stones. The Beach Boys. My stuff, right? And what that did is it began to have a bring media into my bedroom, into my ear, into my car, in all the places that my parents weren't. Now, when I first saw TV, mid-50s, I think, there was uh, three TV stations. They were on during the day, and they would go off at midnight playing the national anthem, and then go, boom, and show me a picture of a... Chief, sideways. And it would come on in the morning the same way. Which meant every teenager in my generation saw the same things. We all heard the same music. We all saw the same movies. We all knew the same stuff. It was there and we had our own version of it. And so uh, I could watch Spin and Marty so I could see Annette there was something about Annette. I didn't know it was peanut butter. But you know, our generation was coming of age in that kind of context. Today, a child can be only exposed to what I was exposed to and their best friend can be exposed to what my kids were exposed to and another one can be exposed to what my parents were and they can have nothing in common. Because media now is 24-7 on demand and that means there are very few shared experiences in growing up. That created a youth movement. And the sock hops and the rock and roll shows and all of that created a, a youth movement in the 1950s and 60s and created a thing called adolescence. There was no such thing as adolescence before the 1950s. If you look at the old movies of the 40s and the early 50s, there were teenagers, but teenagers wore suits and were adults. Okay, Watch... Uh, watch... Uh, uh, Mickey Rooney and, and those movies and they're all in college and they're all adults are going to put on a show. They're all responsible. They have jobs. They're doing all that stuff. You don't get the adolescent until the late 50s when I was a teenage werewolf came out and the blob and things like that. And all of a sudden we added high school and we added other things and people were told uh, you, will, you, you need to grow up later. So, my generation was focused on ourselves and not growing up. And our parents had gone through the Depression and World War II, and they wanted us to not go through difficulty. Three things Depression, World War II, and marriage. Because marriage is hard. So, maybe the reason marriage is hard is we married too young. So, the push was to marry later. And adolescence went from around 12 to 14. Remember in World War II, 17, 18, 19-year-olds won that war. They were operating tanks, flying airplanes. They were operating ships, all that. This generation plays video games. We infantilized a whole generation and didn't let them grow up. Their bodies grew up, but we retarded their minds. We call it adolescence. And it now is extending to 30, 35, maybe 40. They're even coming up with a new term for it. The older ones are called Okay, So that whole thing happened to my generation. It happened across the board. Now there would have been an answer to that. The answer to that should have been the church and discipleship. But some things happened in the church at the same time. Because the church, instead of being of the world, I mean... uh, Uh, In the world, but not of it. In the world, but not of it. The church decided to be of the world, but not in it. They have rock and roll, we'll have rock and roll. They have frisbees, we'll have frisbees, but ours will have Bible verses on them. They have dances, we'll have prayer gatherings, but we'll play the music so that we can keep the youth because the youth became the focus of that entire generation. Now, how did that happen? Let me do this real quick. First thing that happened back again in the 30s to the 60s was a new kind of ministry. It was called a parachurch. Youth for Christ, Navigators, Teen Challenge, those kind of organizations were formed. And they were formed not to compete with the church, but to be the arms of the church. The idea was Youth for Christ would go to the high school campuses, reach the non-Christian youth, what was called the pagan kid, and bring them into the church. Teen Challenge would go into the streets and find the drug addicts and bring them into the church. Navigators would do that with military. Gideons would put Bibles in all uh, all the hotels. The church would reach out into that world and bring them in. Because if you went to a church during that time, you didn't hear any evangelism. You were discipled. The church was a disciple center, to coin a phrase. And when you came in, you came in as a believer and you were discipled. And you grew to maturity and you ministered and you cared for one another and you did that kind of stuff. There were no youth groups. There were children's ministries, and when you got out of when you got out of the children's thing, you were an adult. You were in the you were in church. You're in big church. Okay? And in big church you sang the hymns and you said the confessions and you you did the stuff because you was an adult. But my generation didn't want to go to church. Church is boring. It's not exciting. It's not like the TV and the radio and all the stuff we're exposed to. It's just a drone, drone, as it was in the beginning. Is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. <laughs> Why do I need to do that? And you know what? Parents didn't have an answer. Because they weren't going either. Didn't matter. Because all the value system of the culture was Judeo-Christian. The non-Christians said, be honest. Don't steal. Just like the Christians. So, what was the purpose of church? Church. So the parachurch movement reached out to people but didn't bring them into the church. I'm a product of the parachurch world, Youth for Christ. I came to profession of faith. And then I worked as a Youth for Christ director. And the only time I ever stepped into a church was when I was speaking. I wasn't discipled because a new thing had happened. The parachurch world wasn't interested in discipling. They were only interested in reaching decisions for Jesus. Get you saved. What I call layaway Christianity. Who gets you saved and you're on layaway until the rapture. Right? So the idea was, who needs discipleship? All you need is how to share your faith. And you'll go about an evangelism explosion. And all of this stuff began to do evangelism. And the church has said, nobody's coming to church. Maybe we should do evangelism too. So the churches started using their services to evangelize rather than to worship and to discipleize. They copied that they started youth groups where the kids didn't have to go to the big church. They could go to their own church. Then we would make Jesus fun for the children. is it Jesus fun? Jesus is a lot of fun. I think Jesus is fun. I don't want to be a child anymore. Jesus is for children. I don't want to be a child. (gasps) Jesus is cool. Jesus is cool? Yeah. Ooh, Jesus is cool. So now we have a youth group. Now that group never grew up. And if you go to most churches today, you'll be sitting in a 1950s youth group service, singing choruses, and then having an evangelistic sermon. Youth for Christ took over the churches, and the churches died. Well, the hippie movement was going on. Now, I go back far enough to remember beatniks, but this new group came along. They were hippies. They had real long hair. Um, beatniks were kind of into Bohemian poetry and, and uh, bongo drums. I was more of that era. Uh, uh, Dr. Lewis was a hippie. Long hair, drugs, you know, that staring look. you know, All of that stuff. Uh, and all of those druggies kind of burned out and found out, you know who else had long hair? Jesus. Wow. And he wore sandals. And he was anti establishment because we hate the establishment. Don't trust anybody over 30. Now, Jesus started his ministry when he's 30, but nobody told him that. So we have the Jesus movement. And people were putting away some of their drugs because a lot of people had Bible studies while having drugs because Jesus was a revolutionary, countercultural. cultural That's what Jesus is about. Jesus was a radical. And the Jesus movement took over. Youth ministry, Jesus was cool. One more thing happened, the charismatic movement. There had been Pentecostals among us but pentecostals didn't have much influence but the charismatic movement was kind of pentecostalism light and it swept through the churches and it swept through all the churches catholic churches lutheran churches all the churches and it said not only can you read the bible and the bibles cool we all study the bible just read the bible people were had cassette tapes they were doing they were studying the bible studying the bible studying the bible oh what's the latest thing but now god can talk to you directly The old Greco-Roman days are back. What did God tell you? Well, God told me to date that girl. How do you know? She's the only one that said yes. (laughs) And now we began to use the force. We called it the spirit. And it permeated Christianity. And it's easier than studying the word to just kind of wait and see what God says to your mind and to your feelings. And it began to push towards postmodernism. Now, one new thing happened, and this one, some of you won't believe me. The only non-denominational stuff that existed prior to the 1960s was parachurches. Youth for Christ was non-denominational. What does that mean? It means that a Catholic and a Baptist and an Assembly of God person. And a Methodist and a Nazarene can all work at Youth for Christ because we're not going to get into our theological differences. In other words, we're denominational, but our ministry will be non-denominational. Are you following me? I'm still a Baptist. You're still a Catholic. You're still a Methodist. You know what you're doing. We will take the things we have in common and use that for our our ministry. There was no such thing as a non-denominational church or a non-denominational person. But after the charismatic movement, and particularly with things like Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard, they began to create non-denominational, anti-denominational churches. Which meant, we don't have to connect to any structure, we don't have to be accountable to anybody, we'll use the force, we'll use the word, and we'll talk about it among ourselves. And there was an explosion of non-denominational churches. At the same time, contemporary Christian music showed up. The first time I brought my guitar into a Reformed church, I was promptly removed. Now, one of the reasons was that my guitar had a Playboy Bunny sticker on it because the rock and roll group I was presently in was called the Playboy's. P-L-A-B-O-Y-S. Then, Gary Lewis and the Playboys came out with this diamond ring. Any of you know that song? And they went national. We were just a local band. We had to change our name to the Majestics. So when I played in churches, I had a little picture of Jesus that sat over the Playboy bunny. And when I did my rock and roll concerts, it came off and that was it. Compartmentalization. Now, if you think I'm if you think I'm kidding, ask any of these people that are older than you and they're gonna tell you this is what was going on. Okay? Or they were clueless. <laughs> and at the same time, Christianity discovered media, and we went to TV and got stuff like TBN and televangelists and pop. Christian musicians who have no commitment to Christ. They only have a commitment to their ministry. Because appearance and performance is more important than character. Postmodernism. Okay. These movements pushed an already highly individualized culture. From rugged individualism. Which is what they used to call Americans to what I call radical individualism, hyper-individualism. And in that context, marriage became optional, extended education became a common goal, and it created an extension of adolescence. So now, what, what was the result? The result was this. Marriage is now an option. But if you're female, you better get yourself in school. Because you need something to fall back on when that bum leaves you. You could think about getting married after you get your education. Okay. Now the human female body is designed by evolution or God, I choose God, to give birth in the late teens and early twenties. But this is going to move it to the late twenties, early thirties, late 30s, early 40s which we're seeing going on today and it does damage both to the female body and to the child that's born. But it's about my convenience and we'll use technology. We'll harvest your eggs and give them back to you when you're 50. Then you can have a teenager when you're in your 60s. Children are an option have children but have children later after you are secure whatever that means extended adolescence is now well into the twenties that's why Cal Baptist next year next week when I go in I will have to dodge skateboards hundreds hundreds of skateboards now there weren't skateboards in my junior high there were bicycles Skateboards in elementary school, we made them ourselves from a piece of wood and an old skate. They didn't work very well. We had bicycles in junior high. We had cars in high school. These guys have skateboards and they bring them to class. Okay. Um, career as identity, it's not about subsistence. It's not about just paying your bills. It's about being significant and successful. Greco-Roman, not Judeo-Christian. And there is no truth. Well, you have truth and I have truth. Opinions vary. There's really no standard. But what really is important is how you feel. Because we want your self-esteem. A word I never heard growing up. We want your self-esteem to be high. And good. and We have a whole industry to make sure that you feel good about yourself. We call it narcissism. Okay, And the Christian version of that, you can actually feel God. You can feel God's presence. You can feel God's leaning. You can feel God's leading. You will find none of that in the scriptures. You will find none of that in historic theology. You won't even find that in the hymns. There's only one. Every time I feel the spirit moving in my heart, I pray. But now... We feel God. And then we feminize the culture. Just try. Just try to get hurt on a playground. You can't do it. You can fall from the top of the swings and you're going to bounce. Everything's covered with some kind of rubber or something. When we played, if we fell out of a tree and broke an arm, and many did... We learn to hang on. (laughs) In other words, we got some real life experience. Now we've got kids that jump off buildings because they've been jumping off stuff their whole life and never felt pain. And they think they can do it. And we call that progress. Because as you know, mom wants you safe and clean underwear. Dad wants you to grow up. And we took dads out of the equation. You don't need dad. You just need a parent that loves you. We push the single parent family as just as good as a two parent family. You don't need dad. Because you know how it works. Third grade, come home with a picture. Mom sees it. This is wonderful. She puts it up on the refrigerator. Then dad comes home. He looks at the picture and he says, what the hell is that? And you say, oh, mom's going to make me feel good no matter what. But dad will tell me the truth. Now, sometimes dad, you can't please him. And that creates problems too, right? You get hurt, where do you go? You go to mommy. Mommy's going to say, oh, we're going to clean it. We're going to put something on it. It'll have a little happy face. And we're going to make cookies. (laughs) You go to dad. Dad, I hurt my knee. You call that an injury? I lost both legs, both arms in the war. I still had to walk and carry everything and take my friends to school. Come back when you're really hurt. There's a difference between men and women, okay? But in the university system, we said men and women are the same. There's no difference. Now, you have to be a PhD to believe that nonsense. Because if you had a father and a mother, if you had a brother and a sister, if you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know there's something different about that other group. They are weird at best and diabolical at least, right? Male, females, we're different. And God intended for us to come together and those differences to create... a. a being of echad or unity. We use differences. Our culture says if you're different, we need to get rid of that difference. We'll tolerate it as long as it doesn't change me. So all of this brought us to the postmodern world. And I'm I gotta stop. So let me let me tell you what the postmodern world is. My experience and my feelings are valid and true. You may not question or criticize them. If anyone agrees with me, I am confirmed. If anyone disagrees with me, they are engaged in hate speech, and I am confirmed. Because I just feel this way. Now here's the Christian version of it. My experience and feelings about God are valid and true. My interpretation of the Bible is as valid as yours. If you agree, I am confirmed. If you disagree, you're judgmental because God told me. So, we now have five, count them, five worldviews. We have the secular modern who says, there is truth, that's in science, we don't need religion. There's the liberal uh, Christian one that says, we need to keep some semblance of the religion, but science is our answer. You have the conservatives who say, we're going to keep the Bible, but I'm... Not sure what it says, and because uh, they're not reading it anymore, they're using shortcuts. And uh, we'll take whatever of science we can. But in fact, they're much more on the liberal side, because when you have a when you have a medical thing, you go immediately to a doctor. If you have a parenting thing, you go immediately to a therapist. You know, we 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 are, we're using the systems. We're outsourcing everything. Then there's two postmodern ones. Here's the postmodern secular. Well, I had a friend who had an abortion. She's a nice person, so I guess it's okay. I have a friend who's gay. They're a nice person. I, I think it's okay. Because our experience is all that matters. Christian version of that. Well, I, you know, sometimes these things have to happen. And it's all forgivable. In other words, your postmodern Christian has no more values than your postmodern non Christian. They only have experience and feelings. And since our whole culture is designed to control your experience and your feelings, they are being taken away from biblical truth and the Christian experience. So I want to read the passage to you. I'll just read it. I won't comment on it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and with this I'll close. 2 Timothy 3.16 I said 2 Timothy, I meant 1 Timothy 3.16 By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. That's Jesus. And from there, he will come back. Right? But the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. Who will forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from foods, we're on such a health kick, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. It is sanctified by means of the word and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now bodily discipline has some profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. So you can be in shape physically but being in shape spiritually is good for everything. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For if in this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. I'd love to spend some time on that text. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Uh, um, Timothy was probably just below the age of 30. But rather in your speech, and your conduct, in your love, and your faith, your purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture. That's the lexical readings. That's systematic reading that Judaism and the church has always done give and to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance by the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The Holy Spirit is in you. He's not working your emotions or your mind. He's illuminating the scriptures. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. I'm going to be even more radical than I've been because as the light is going out in the culture around us, the light from God's word has to be in us and it's not going to work to just come to church. If the day comes when there's persecution and I'm taken away from you, And your scriptures are taken away from you. It will only be what you know and can do. And can repeat that you will take with you. And if not you, your children. Let's pray.